Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. So we're in the middle of our series. Well, actually, not in the middle of the series. We're at the very end of the series on why I believe. And if you haven't been through this series, it's been a great series um, we've gone through quite a few different topics, which I've loved and really enjoyed it. Oh, don't drop that. Um, so we started off with why I believe that God is real, why I believe in a creator, why I believe Jesus is the only way, why I believe God allows suffering, why I believe Jesus rose from the dead, why I believe in the Holy Spirit as well. That was last week, Troy did that. And t- today we are doing why I believe that truth matters. That's the title of today's service. And I was wrestling with this because this is a big topic. And it took me a while to just wrestle through, what do I talk about today? Why, why do I believe that truth matters? And um, before we start, how about we just close our eyes and we commit this time to the Lord, hey? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you that you are present with us today. Lord, thank you that um, your word is true, your word is available for us, that we can seek you through it, Lord, and we pray as we open your word today that you will help guide us through your Holy Spirit to see Jesus' face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, who remembers this famous court case in 1992? Who was around in 1992? I was five, so I don't remember that. But this court case was watched by millions of people all around the world. And it was about the murder of a private in the U.S. Army. Two men were found guilty of the murder of this private. But it became clear throughout the trial that although they were guilty, their actions, or they they were acting upon an order that were given by a commanding officer. Um, And that order, they really, I mean, they could have chosen not to obey it, but they're pretty strong in about... They have to go through with what they're ordered to do. In one of the most dramatic moments of the trial, the lawyer puts the colonel on the stand and they have this epic back and forth trying to establish the truth behind the murder. The lawyer went right at the colonel and he says this, did you order the code red? And the judge said, you don't have to answer this, but the colonel, not not going to be put off by this slick young Harvard lawyer, he said, I'll answer the question. And then he fires right back at him. You want answers? The lawyer responded, I want the truth. In which the colonel yelled in reply, you can't handle the truth. Okay, who knows what I'm referring to? Hand up, yes. I see those with grey hair are putting their hand up, right? If you're over 50, you probably know what that is. So does this help anyone? That picture, Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson. Okay, the movie's A Few Good Men. Now do we know who, what we're talking about? Yeah, okay, there we go. Great movie. And I really just wanted to have that interest so I could say those lines in church. No, it does have relevance. And in this film, they're missing something. They're missing each other because I think what they're talking about is facts under the banner of truth. And I want to argue that there's a difference between facts and truth. And now English teachers are probably going to say, no, really, they're sort of the same thing. But... Facts really are things that you can see, touch, feel, and like this Bible, right? It's a book. We can see it, we can touch it. That's a fact. But truth is what sits underneath those things and orientates us to reality. 
Truth is actually behind all those facts. And so the question I want to ask today is this. What is truth? It's a big question. What is truth? And in another court case 2,000 years ago, Pontius Pilate asked this very same question. In John chapter 18, Pilate says to Jesus, You are a king then, says Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate replies, what is truth? It's the question that people have been asking and debating over for centuries. What is truth? What is the ultimate reality? What is the ultimate reality that determines all other realities? Now, does this hurt your brain? (laughs) Because it hurts my brain. And preparing for this, my brain just turned into mush, really. But I wanted to step through three different things that I think might help us step towards that direction in understanding this question and understanding where we as Christians believe truth is from. So the first is this, truth is external and fixed. Second is truth is revealed in Scripture. And the third thing is this, truth is a person and is knowable. So truth is external and fixed. It is not internal and fluid. This is the big mess of our day. That we have moved from truth being outside of us to something, from something that is fixed and set and unchangeable to truth is something in here. Have you ever heard these statements like, the, the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself? Or that your truth, your truth but not my truth. This is true for you, but it's not true for me. It's subjective. That's the language that you hear all the time today. And so historically, most most across human history, we've believed the truth is from outside of us. It's fixed. And in every monotheistic religion, truth is outside of me, and I orientate myself around that truth. It's not always changing. It's fixed. But now in our modern Western society which is an absolute catastrophe, that we are told to find truth for ourselves individually by looking inside ourselves for what is true. And what happens when we do this? What happens when you go down, deep down inside of you? You find your desires. It's what you desire for. And what sort of desires do you find in there? All sorts of different desires, right? A whole mixture of desires, And then you mix that with the big questions of life of like, who am I? What is the purpose of life? What is truth? It's not going to work. Go in there. Going within to determine the ultimate reality, ultimate truth, leaves us empty and confused. It leaves us with anxiety, depression, and anger. It's not working. We can see that throughout our society, right? There are young people full of anxiety, because we've asked them. We've we've put this weight on them to find meaning and truth from inside themselves. But then then we look outside ourselves and we look for spirituality, we look for other reasons, and we mix that in with all our desires, and there's a buffet of desires and spirituality that leaves us even more confused. And this is the result of that message, that truth can be found within yourself. It breeds strife, It breeds uncertainty, confusion in our soul when we search for truth internally. And and it's constantly changing. I don't know about you, but my my desires are different from day to day sometimes. 
I want this, but then I want that, and I can't have both. And if I form my identity on how I find and how I feel within, it's going to just create instability. But this is the air we breathe in our culture, right? It's all over social media, in the TV, movies. It's, what it's, it's, it's the message that we're told. And this is the devastating cultural mistake that if we think, we, we, because if we elevate our subjective opinion and thoughts of truth to the status of God, that is not a good place to be. But what's the good news? And the good news is what we believe is that truth is external. Truth is from outside of us. God wants us to know truth. He hasn't hidden it. Rather, he has made it accessible to us. Truth isn't something that you need to search in the most obscure places on earth. God desires for us to ultimately see him as truth. And the primary way that you and I can know and understand truth is through the revelation, through, only through a revelation of God. And that's found in scriptures. And so it comes, brings us to the next point. Truth is revealed. It has to be revealed from outside. And truth is revealed from God through the Bible. The Bible is God's true word. It's from God. It's about God. And I hate to break it to you, but it's not about you and it's not about me. It's actually about God. It's about him revealing to us who he is. And this is a miraculous book. It's not, it's not just a fact book. Well, it isn't really a fact book. People sometimes go, think, I can get science out of this. It's not. It's a truth book. And why do we think it's miraculous? And why do we think we take it so seriously? And I want to go through a few things, and we're going to geek out a little bit, do some Bible geeking here, about some of the things that we know about the Bible. And the first thing is this. It says that the Bible is written across 1,500 years in 66 books by 40 different authors in six genres, four different languages and three continents, and it's all one story. <laughs> That's incredible. Did you know this, that the whole, the, the, there is one story throughout the Bible. From Genesis to Revelations, it tells the same story. It's the story of God redeeming and saving his people. His creation from the brokenness of sin, saving us from the brokenness and sin and death. This is the story written over that many years. But the question is, can we find the Bible reliable? Um, the next point here I want to make is that the Bible is that one that you've got in your lap or on your phone is nearly identical to the original manuscripts that we have. And here's an example. In 1947, in the cave of Quran, you would have heard of this, they found what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there were hundreds of manuscripts in the cave that dated 1,000 years earlier than anything that we had, any manuscripts that we had until that point. And so what they did is they took the scroll of Isaiah from that manuscript, which was 1,000 years before anything we had, and they took the Bible that you have in your lap and in your phones and they put them side by side and they were 99.5% identical. Isn't that incredible? Yes, clap that. That is incredible. But the question was, what about the, 
exactly. It's a divine book. But what about the 0.5? You might ask, what about the 0.5%? If it's really God's word, wouldn't that, what about the 0.5? And the 0.5 is really just sentence structure and spelling errors. These are called errors of sight. But when they're compared to the hundreds of other copies that we have, they're easy to spot. That's ridiculous. It's amazing. The third thing I want to point out about Scripture is this. Compared to other ancient writings, the New Testament can be trusted as accurate, authentic, and reliable. We're going to keep going with some of the nerdy stuff. Okay, so Plato's Republic is universally accepted as correct and authoritative. Um, It was written around 380 B.C., so it's 380 years before Christ. The earliest copies we have of Plato's Republic are dated around 920 AD. So 1,300 years go by and we don't have any copies of this supposed book that was written 1,300 years ago. And then we discover it. And how many copies do we have? Seven. We have seven copies. 1,300 years from when they were supposed to have been written. And this is considered in our universities, to be reliable and authoritative. And so I'll put up on the screen here so we can start comparing some of these things. And the next one we'll have a quick look at is Caesar's Gallic War. Caesar's Gallic War was written around 100 to 44 BC, and the earliest copies we have are dated around 900 to 956 AD, which is about 1,000 years after he wrote it. They've, They've dated manuscripts, and they only have 10 copies of that. So these two documents that you see on the screen here, these writings, they're given to us to read at universities and we're told to shape all of Western civilization on documents like this, right? And there's a massive gap between when they were written and when they they actually found some manuscripts. And yet there's no question about their authenticity and their authority, even when we only have seven and ten numbers, uh, copies of the manuscript, So let's compare this quickly to the New Testament. And this is fascinating. The New Testament was written 40 to 100 AD, and we have manuscripts dated at around 130 to 350 AD, which is only about 170 years after they were written, at a minimum. And yet this, we have more than 5,300 copies. That is remarkable. And the remarkable thing about that is the Bible that you have in your lap, in your hands, is that there's such a short chronological distance between events that were described and the manuscripts that we have. That book is a miracle. It is an absolute miracle. Uh, Professor F.J.A. Hort, one of the greatest scholars in the area of textual criticism, he said this. He said, "In, "...in the variety and fullness of the evidence... In which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. But it isn't just textual criticism, that's what we're talking about here, that support the reliability of Scripture. So does archaeology. Now, we could spend all day with this, but I'm just going to put up a quote by one of the leading archaeologists. His name's Nelson Gluick, not a Christian. And he says this, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discoveries have ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which can confirm in clear, in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. That's amazing, right? That is amazing. So when we go 
And we continue through these reasons. We could for ages, but the point is, is that we can trust it as historical fact. We can trust this. We can trust it as the source of revealed truth from God. Right? So let's just recap on those two things. Truth, sorry, truth is external, not internal. Truth is revealed in Scripture. But what does it say? What does it actually say about truth? It says that truth is a person and is knowable. That person is knowable. And this is what excites me, right? And I know it excites you because it's not this abstract thing that we have to try and obtain. It's something we can know. So finally, after 15 minutes of me talking, I'd love for you to open your Bibles if you have them or on your phones. And if you don't, I've got it on the screen here. Um, And we're going to turn to the Gospel of John um, at the very start of the Gospel of John. John 1 verse 1. It says this. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, he starts off with, in the beginning. If you know your Bibles... John's referencing something here. He's referencing the very first verse of the Bible, which says, in the beginning, God. But what John, he doesn't use the Greek word for God here. And the English word's translated a word, which is sort of a bit like, what does that really mean? But the Greek word that he's used here is logos. Because Greeks had multiple gods. If he used the Greek word for God, it'd be like, well, which God? So he uses the word, his Greek word logos, and the Greek philosophers, philosophers um, they had this concept of logos, and I'll read the definition, will be up on the screen of what logos is. Logos is a principle orientating classic Greek thought, which refers to a universal divine reason, imminent in nature, yet transcending all oppositions and imperfections in the cosmos and humanity an eternal and unchanging truth present from the time of creation, available available to every individual who seeks it. Now, if we skip a couple of verses down to verse 14, that same book, that same chapter in the book of John, or Gospel of John, in verse 14 it says, And the Word, which is Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John, writing about the coming of Jesus, he says, oh yeah, you know that thing you Greeks always think about? You always try and find out what it is. You get together with your friends and you philosophize around. That's Jesus. He's making a profound statement here. He is saying that Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the universal divine reason. Jesus is imminent in nature. Jesus is transcendent over all oppositions and imperfections in the cosmos and in humanity. Jesus is eternal and unchanging truth. Present from the time of creation, available to everyone who seeks it. The Logos is Jesus. That's what John's saying. 
And in the, if you go further in chapter 14, Jesus is with his disciples. And his disciples are getting really anxious about the fact that Jesus is talking about him being arrested and put to death. And he's, just, he's trying to tell them that this is coming and it's just disorientating them. And so he moves towards them and comforts them. And he says this to them, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. And he goes on and he talks about preparing a place for his disciples and trying to calm them down in their worry and anxiety. And then he says in verse 6, this is chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This is not a very politically correct statement. Here Jesus is saying there is no other way, there is no other truth, there's no other life. I am it. I am the truth. Not a truth, but the truth. And the things that you and I want so much in our lives are inseparably linked to Jesus. We want purpose. We want meaning. All those desires we're talking about before inside of us. We want to be flourishing. They are inseparably linked to the Logos, to Jesus. He is the ultimate reality. Yes, thanks, Lucy, love it. And he's not just a prophet, a teacher, or someone who told nice stories. He isn't just a philosopher. He isn't just a miracle worker, but he defines reality, right? He says, I'm the ultimate reality behind everything there is. There is no other way. There is no other life outside of life built on the foundation of me being the truth. Not a truth among many truths. Jesus is the person that we talk about when we talk about truth. Jesus, truth is the person of Jesus. Do you believe this? Yes? You might be here today. This is the first time you walked into church. And you're like, I don't know. But that's what we believe. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with all this? What are we going to do today with this truth? The truth is external from us. It's revealed to us. And truth is the person of Jesus. First thing I want you to do is when you pick this up, take it home and read it. This is God's revelation of truth to us. But don't just read it like the religious people read it. Jesus had a pretty strong warning to religious people about how they read the Bible. He says in chapter 5 of John, he said to them, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Did you hear what he said? He said, you search the scriptures in vain. You search the scriptures in vain. You read them in vain because you think the book has life without me. The book is pointing to me, Jesus says. You won't come to me. I am the truth. In scripture, this book is pointing to me. So I encourage you to read it, but read, look, find Jesus in this. And as you read the Bible, look and ask the Holy Spirit to say, help me to see the beauty of Jesus. Now I'm going to ask Gavin if a couple others could hand out if you haven't already got one of those communion pods, we're just going to have 
a time of communion as we close the service. Um, put your hand up if you don't have one of them and he'll bring it around. And for those of you who may be new to church, this is something that we do to remember this truth, to remember that Jesus is the absolute truth and reality and what he has done for us. And as we just get ready for that, I'll just ask Belinda if you can come up and start playing. There's a bigger application, I think, than just read the Bible. There's a bigger application here. And that's, if this is true, if what I'm saying is true, then the right response is to surrender our lives to Him and confess that I haven't done that. I haven't made Him my absolute reality. And there has to be, there has to be surrendering in this to that truth. Because if Jesus is the ultimate answer to everything, if He is the ultimate reality, and if He stands behind everything, and he defines it. This means that Jesus cannot be an add-on for you. It not, cannot just be another thing that you do during your week. But he has to be a part, every part of your life. It's not just a tick the box so I can go to heaven. He is everything. He is absolutely everything. He is the mighty one. I want to read this out because I don't want to get this wrong. This is, he is the alpha and the omega. He is the author of life, the perfecter of our faith. He is the bread of life. He is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is our deliverer. He is faithful and true. He is the good shepherd. He is the high priest. He is the judge. He's the king of kings. He's the lamb of God. He is the light of the world, the Lord of all, the mediator, the Messiah, the mighty one, the one who sets us free. He's our hope. He's our peace. He's our redeemer. He's our risen Lord. He's our rock. He's the sacrifice for our sins. He's the saviour. He's the supreme creator and he's the prince of peace. And he is the truth. And how do we respond to this truth? We have to say, God, I'm sorry. I've not made you the ultimate reality and truth of my life. We have to repent, which means to change, to turn. What did, what did I put in place of Jesus? What did I put instead of Him as my ultimate reality? Is it a desire? Do I need to turn from that? Repent, which that's what repent means. Turn from that and say, Jesus, You are my way. You are my life. You are my truth. So that's the invitation today. The invitation here is for you to say, He is my way. He is my truth and He is the life. And there's no purpose. There is no flourishing outside of Him. I'm going to pray and we'll give a little bit of time just to contemplate that and take communion. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much that You have revealed Yourself to us, that we can depend on You as the source of truth. And it doesn't depend on us. We don't go deep inside of us to seek for truth because that leaves us just confused and anxious and lost. But you are the ultimate truth, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much that the truth, the ultimate of all things, the ultimate being who created all things came down to this world. You became a man, you walked on this world, you lived a life we couldn't live and you died the, the death that we deserved. 
Lord, we thank you so much. We pray, we ask for your forgiveness for when we have not made you our reality. We have not made you our ultimate truth. We have not made you the Lord of all. We confess of that. We ask and we thank you for your forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.